All right, so let's jump right into this here tonight. We are discovering a topic in our series that is entitled Avoiding Confusion. And we're looking at different issues that can definitely cause confusion in our culture today, in our world today, as well as in the church, if we do not look to the Word of God for answers. So I think that tonight is an interesting one. As you can see, the subject is the presence of evil, the presence of evil. All of us have wondered at one point or another why God allows the world to be full of so much pain and suffering. We believe that God is good, yet sometimes it's very hard to reconcile what we see in the world with what we know about God. In this study tonight, we're going to follow along a little bit with the prophet Habakkuk who voiced this precise problem. From Habakkuk's conversation with God, we gain a new and hopeful perspective for an age-old dilemma. So here goes the problem, here goes the accusation, here goes the truth that even Christians, myself and probably you at one point or another, have had to deal with, and that is reconciling the following facts. God is good, God is sovereign, God created a world that contains an immense amount of darkness, of pain, and of human suffering. So people will say, why did God allow the evil? Why does God not stop the evil? Why do children get hurt? And why? how do we balance the answers of God being good and God being sovereign over creation with this problem? And it's actually a problem that people in the Bible struggled with as well. So I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God put record in the scripture of people who were struggling and people who had questions. The Bible is not just a record full of people on their very best days at the very top of their game. But when we see biographies given in the scripture, even amongst people that God speaks very highly of, like King David, who wrote much of the Old Testament and the book of the Psalms, we see the ugly parts too. We see the sin. And part of what comes out is we see the doubt. The first verse at the top of your outline there is the prophet of God proclaiming his confusion to God. And he says in Habakkuk 1, 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. In other words, what we see is confusion from the prophet of God that God is not hearing the cry of his people and that he's not doing anything about the violence and he's not saving the innocent from the presence of the violence that is in the world. Habakkuk wrote one of what we would call the minor prophets. It doesn't mean that his message or his life or the words of his book are minor in comparison to other prophets, but it does mean that the book is shorter than the other longer books that the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. You can read the entire book of Habakkuk in just six minutes, and in this short little book, we see very good insight to this problem of struggling with the presence of evil in our world. The name Habakkuk literally means to embrace, as in to comfort a child who is in need of comfort. And if you want to go home and read it, as I said, it takes probably less than 10 minutes. And what you can track is that the entire book of Habakkuk is a running dialogue. In other words, it's a conversation. Habakkuk the prophet wrestles with the existence of dark evil, yet the presence of a good God that possesses all power. So there's uh, uh, this line of attack that comes from atheism that even in a movie one time, the Lex Luthor character said, if God is all good, then God cannot be all powerful. If God is all powerful, then God cannot be all good. Okay, so in other words, the charges, which we don't believe is a true or an accurate one, but the charges, if God is really good, he would try to stop all of the evil immediately. So if he's truly good, he must lack the power to stop everything. But if he possesses the power to stop all evil immediately, then he cannot be good because why would a good God allow suffering? So we'll get to the biblical answers to this problem because the Bible does clearly answer this question along with all of the difficult questions we wrestle with if we will look at it honestly and ask God to speak the answer to our hearts through the scripture that he has written. 
And while we hear that false charge and it makes us a little upset and we want to immediately probably start to answer it, we have to remember that in the example of the scripture tonight, even the prophet of God struggled with this same problem and this same confusion that he felt about this issue. Habakkuk wrote in one of the verses and said, O Lord, wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? He was in his ministry when King Josiah proclaimed for the scriptures to be read and obeyed, and God brought about a great revival in a time of pulling people close to the Lord. That happened within the lifetime of the prophet Habakkuk. Now, all he could see was the evil. He didn't understand why God wasn't giving an answer. And then when God did give the answer, he was confused even more. This story is obviously very relevant to today as this question is wrestled with in the world. Number one in your outline, we see the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse number 1 The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. The Old Testament word here for burden in the Hebrew means a divine vision. So again, the Bible is the word of God and the people who wrote it proclaimed it to be the word of God and revelation that came from God himself and not just their ideas of what they wanted to write. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 1 speaks of a vision that Isaiah saw When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne in this glorious setting. But the vision Habakkuk saw was very different. It was one of ugliness, of sin, and of darkness. Yet the revelation was from God, just as all the other revelations that God gave to the prophets. So under the letter A, we see Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk's questions. Here's a quote by John Scott. The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Here's part of the argument, as I said before, that that guy said in 350 BC, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is not good. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In Randy Alcorn's book, If God is Good, he reminds us of the overwhelming suffering in the world. He says in Sudan, millions, including children, have been murdered, raped, and enslaved. The 2004 Asian tsunami killed more than 280,000 people at one time. Malaria causes more than 2 million fatalities annually, the majority of them African children. Around the world, some 26,500 children die every day, 18 every minute. We think of a horrible event and we think of the Twin Towers falling on September the 11th because it was so visceral and so random and an act of violence and intentional terror and evil. But the death toll was 2,973. Yes, that's terrible. Yet that is a small fraction of the terror and loss of life faced every day around the world. The death toll in the 1994 Rwandan genocide, for example, amounted to more than two World Trade Center disasters every day for 100 days straight. Americans discovered in one day what much of the world already knew. Violent death comes quickly, hits hard, and can be unspeakably dreadful. Then we have the the quote on the screen from that philosopher. And let me see one more. A Barnapole asked, if you could ask God one question and you knew God would give you the answer, what would you ask God? The most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? So Habakkuk had questions and so do we. And I believe as Christians, we should seek to address this issue with compassion. Because probably each and every one of us could point to a time of loss or suffering in our life where there may have been a temptation, as Job felt, to look to God and say, why did you allow this? 
Another good example would be Mary and Martha when Lazarus died. Now on that particular occasion, Jesus showed up and he raised Lazarus from the dead. But they didn't know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And most of the time when a loved one dies, Jesus isn't coming to call them up out of the grave. But from their point of view, Jesus showed up and they said, Jesus, you're three days behind. Lazarus is already dead. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So sometimes that simple equation is difficult to wrap our brain around. God, this bad thing happened. If you wanted to, you could have prevented it. Hence, if you had been here, my brother had not died. If you had been in this situation, this child wouldn't have gotten cancer. If you had showed up, my pain, my heartache, my suffering, that senseless act of violence or that person who was caught at the Allen Outlet Mall and destroyed by a bullet in a random act of violence, God, you had the power to stop it. Why didn't you? And we don't want to accuse God because we ultimately end up repenting and embarrassed and ashamed and in the wrong when we accuse God. Yet the heart of God is a heart of compassion. So the heart of Christians should be a, a heart of compassion to address these problems. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So while we see evil around us, we have to remember we are evil as well. We sin as well. And those emotions and that feeling that comes from the heart or the soul or the innermost man is full of faulty logic and faulty reasoning and emotion that will pull us astray if we do not remember what God has said in His Word. When He said in the book of Isaiah, My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher and better than your thoughts. And we could say, God, if I had the power to stop all this suffering, I would stop it. So why aren't you? And we must remember that often we are not as patient with God as God is with us. And Jonah ended up being angry at God because God told him to go to Nineveh and preach to Nineveh. And evidently, Nineveh had done a lot of evil, had punished the people of Jonah and killed them and persecuted them. So Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but he did. After God allowed him to be swallowed by the great fish and spend three days and three nights in the deep. And when he was spat up, he ran and went to Nineveh and proclaimed the gospel message. Repent or God's going to destroy this city. And you know what happened? They repented. How many people have labored a lifetime and desired to see what Jonah was able to see in evidently an extremely short amount of time as he crosses the land, gives the message, repent or God will punish you. And the people repented and Jonah got angry. And Jonah said, I didn't want to see them get saved. I wanted to see them get punished. But I knew your nature, Jonah said. I knew your character and I knew they were liable to end up repenting and you wouldn't forgive them. And I didn't want them to be forgiven. So we may look at God and say, God, why are you allowing the evil? Why aren't you stopping this? But even when we aren't patient with God, God is very patient with us. And part of what we'll get to here tonight is that God will stop the evil. But when he stops the evil, it's when he ends the free will of man who chooses to do the evil and when the evil is stopped, then too is stopped the opportunity for mankind to repent. So the message of God in the Bible is, remember, no one gets away with all evil. Eventually they all pay for it. But the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's going to wait as long as he can to see as many souls repent and come into his kingdom that he can. And ultimately he will stop the evil. But if God were to snuff out all evil immediately and everyone who had the capacity to do evil and would continue to do evil in their life, he would not just snuff out the people we're thinking of, but he would snuff out you and I as well. Because we are sinners. And theologically speaking, our sin puts us just as much under the wrath of God as the sin of the shooter does. And that's not a message we like to hear. 
Even if we profess we believe it, it still chafes against us to hear, well, my sin cannot be as bad. And I'm not even saying that every act of sin brings the same amount of judgment, either in the short term or the long term. But James was very clear when he was writing and he said, if you could keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. Because the same God that said don't kill is the same God that said don't commit adultery. And maybe you haven't killed anyone, but if you have committed adultery or if you have lied, you have broken the law of God and you are outside of the law as a lawbreaker in need of mercy. And O.J. Simpson, who by all appearances was very guilty of murder, but because of the confluence of events like the jury and the race, racial tension and the riots and the pressure and all the things that were going on, was acquitted and was proclaimed not guilty. I've, I've seen and heard people, even where I work and people that you talk to, they are enraged to think that O.J. Simpson could murder somebody and then be proclaimed innocent and then walks around today collecting checks to talk about sporting events, going to nice restaurants in Los Angeles or where or Las Vegas, wherever he lives, and recently said on a podcast, the, the interviewer said, is there any part of you that is afraid to face God? And he said, no, I'm looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, when I see God, I'm going to get have, have him give me some answers that he owes me. I'm not worried about me being judged by God. So it's enraging, even to people who do not know God, who are not saved. They look at O.J. Simpson, by all accounts, allegedly, apparently murdered somebody and was let off the hook. They're angry with that. So there's something within our heart that says there is evil, but evil must be punished. But if O.J. Simpson dies in that state without repenting and receiving the forgiveness of God, which all of us do have to receive if we are saved, but if he dies of that attitude of zero repentance at all, he's going to pay for his crimes in a far worse way in eternity through the lake of fire than the human justice system ever could have made him pay. I'm getting ahead of myself, so let me continue, and we'll get back to the answer to this question here in a moment. Under the letter B, we see Habakkuk's hopelessness. Habakkuk's hopelessness. Uh, Amon, are you there in Psalm 13.1? Would you read that verse for us? Sure. How long will thou forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will thou hide thy face from me? So again, writers of the Bible, God's own people saying, God, you're hiding your face from me. You're not listening. Why are you not answering this problem that I have? But we have to remember that God's silence does not equal God's absence. He may be silent to you or me at the moment, but he's never absent. He always listens. He always sees. And he always hears your prayer, even if you're not getting the answer you want when you want it. Many have answered this throughout the Bible, have asked this same question. Exodus chapter 2, it's talking about the children of Israel had been in bondage and they had been slaves. The scripture says, and they cried and their cry came up unto God by the reason of the bondage. So evil was present. The Jews were being placed into slavery and treated like animals in a way that the Bible says is evil. But when they cried out to God, the cry may have been, how could you allow this evil? And the accusation could have been given, there's slavery, God's not immediately showing up to stop the slavery and the evil. So why is God not working? Where is God? But God heard the cries and God did intervene. So God gives free will. Mankind chooses to sin. There's evil, there's suffering. But God is always aware and he always hears the cries of the innocent and his heart is moved to work within the structure of human free will that produces evil to help deliver the innocent. The next verse, Exodus 3, 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows. So three statements in Exodus 3, 7. I've surely seen the affliction. I've heard their cry and I know their sorrows. I've seen it. I've heard it and I know it. So the basic point being, if it seems like God is unaware of the evil or ambivalent to the evil, he is not. 
He is aware. He hears the cries and he is moved eventually to address it in the long term and in the short term. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Uh, do you happen to have that one there? Uh, oh, that one's not printed out. Let me read it to you. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Okay, so again, this is the prophet of God, a man of God, pouring out his heart in a conversation to God, saying, you're showing me evil, you're making me behold grievance, spoiling, violence, strife, and contention. And he didn't quite know how to process this. There are two different types of evil that accompany the human condition. If you're going to be a human, you're going to go through the human experience. And the human experience includes natural evil and moral evil. Natural evil is what we would call natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, sickness, cancer, disease. These things are part of being human. These things are part of the experience that we must go through. The other type of evil is a moral evil. That would involve rape, murder, slander, theft, etc. These sins come out of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. All of these crimes are crimes that are outwardly done by action, Yet Christ said they are sins that come from the heart. And legally speaking, no government can legislate crimes of the heart. They try to, and they try to punish crimes differently based off of what the motivation is. But before anybody ever committed the act of murder, taking the life of another innocent human being, they experienced hatred in their heart. Before the adultery comes the lust. Before the theft comes the greed and the covetousness for what another person has. And these crimes of moral evil and the crimes of natural evil claim victims that we would say innocent victims. That child that died in the hurricane or that college student who died from the bullets that flew from the gun of the mass shooter, we would say they are innocent. They didn't have anything to do with what was going on. And by the way, it's not just the Christian worldview or Christians that would struggle with this. Every single worldview has to struggle with this question and try to come up with an answer. And I'll give you in just a minute the reasoning why Christianity truly is the other one that answers the other side of the equation, which is not just an explanation for the evil, but an explanation for the good and for why there is a right to call anything evil or call anything good. Under number two, we have the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Noel, would you want to read a few of those verses for us under point number two? Uh, Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruled over all. Acts 2, verse 28. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Revelation 13, verse 8. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Go ahead and read the last two, if you don't mind. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye, have, that in me ye might have peace. And the world ye, have, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your, are your ways my ways. Okay, so several verses that we threw out there all at once. But basically, as the psalmist said, the Lord ruleth over all. It reminds us that God is not surprised. God is not taken off guard. I believe the word there for the sovereignty of God means literally just that. It's a God who is sovereign in his knowledge and in his power. 
And we included a couple of verses here about Jesus, how it says that Jesus was delivered by the counsel and foreknowledge of God to be slain. And then Revelation 13, 8, he was a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. God did know and foresee the evil, even against his own son, yet he still loved us and sent Christ to die the death of an innocent lamb. He's the only one who's done something about the problem of evil, though he did not cause it. So Christ was given in spite of the fact that God knew evil was going to be done. God said, I'm not going to stop the evil that's going to be done against Jesus. I'm going to let him suffer it, but I'm going to use that event to bring about good, which is the possibility for salvation and redemption of all mankind. Jesus told us to remember that we will have tribulation in the world, but that through him we can overcome because he has already overcome the world. And when we struggle with wanting to know why, we have to remember we may never get a why. And the why may not make us feel any better. And when we struggle to come up with reasoning for why someone would commit an act of violence like a mass shooting, but we remember theology. Did you know that we could have a lot of questions we would want answered specifically? But if our theology is good, if we learn the scriptures in their totality, that's going to lead to the answers of those specific questions. Why did this happen? I don't know. But one thing I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. They are new every morning. So I want to remember when I'm struggling with confusion, God is good. God's never sinned. God's never made a mistake. God is sovereign, but God still gives mankind free will. For that's the way that he created us. So we want to say sometimes, what does my problem say about God? When the better question would be to reverse the question and say, what does God say about my problem? And what he says I agree with, even if I don't fully comprehend it or grasp it, or understand it. Under the letter A, we see the providence of God. The word providence has to do with God's provision. He sees ahead and also he provides in what is coming ahead. So the word providence is kind of a combination of the ideas of the foreknowledge of God, but also the rule and power of God. So I believe God gives mankind free will to make decisions. I believe God knows through his foreknowledge the decisions that they're going to make. But I also know that God is still powerful. He's still sovereign. And he doesn't just let the world run wild to whatever they want. But sometimes he steps in the midst of the evil and says, you're only allowed to go this far. I'm going to use you to do this to punish my people. And later, I'm going to deal with you. And I know the verse is in here in a little bit at somewhere. But when Joseph had been sold into slavery, a terrible act of evil by his own brothers, he saw them years later when he was second in command of all of Egypt. And his brothers were terrified that Joseph was ready for revenge. And Joseph said, I'm not going to punish you. And sort of the theme verse of the whole life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, he says, you meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, they hurled a horrible act of evil at Joseph and God allowed it, but God took what he allowed and turned around and used it for a lot of good, which was to save Joseph's entire family and the nation of Israel to come from the famine that had been in the land. Now, where I think it goes too far is where people want to say that God is the author of all evil. Because the reasoning goes, well, God's so powerful. He preordained everything from before the foundation of the world like a 3D chess player. It's absolute predeterminism. And anything that anybody's ever done, it was because God decreed it. So God decreed even the wicked acts of evil. They will literally say... But it was all part of his chess game to bring about good. So God ordaining the act of murder or assault or molestation was actually good. God caused it, but he was using it in his chess game to bring about good. I don't believe that. I believe God gave us free will. Because if God created something without the ability to choose to love him or not to love him, then by definition we couldn't actually love God. 
And I'm trying to think. I, I know I. I think I'm just all out of order on my notes. I'm just may stop with my notes at some point and stop when I get to a certain time. But to think of a certain illustration that would help us to grasp it, we may know that our child is going to struggle and disobey us, but we still love the child, knowing that they have many future shortcomings. So God looked and said, I'm going to let you choose to do good or bad. I'm going to let you choose to love me or reject me. I'm going to let you choose to do good or evil. So then part of what, what do we say? The natural evil part of that is just the experience of being in a world that is cursed and crushed by sin. Why did God let somebody die in that tsunami? I don't know. And the truth is maybe God did intervene to keep some people away from it who it wasn't their time yet to come. But I know that if someone died at 18 years old in that tsunami, that same person was going to die even if it was at 88 years old. They were going to die. So then maybe God said, I'm going to let the tsunami come at this certain time so that this whole nation's heart will be turned to me in revival. Or maybe it just happened as part of the evil condition that is in the world. Well, why, why did my family member die? Because they were a human and human beings die. And yes, God is sovereign sometimes to allow when someone dies and when someone doesn't. But whether it was just part of the natural progression of a person living in a world crushed by evil, experiencing the evil of the world, or whether or not God said, I'm cutting their time short for some purpose, I'm trying to communicate, probably not very artfully, that they both can be true. God gave us the ability to choose, and evil has come because of our choices, but he's still sovereign enough to intervene within the midst of the evil when he chooses to, to where the writer of Romans could literally say all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Randy Alcorn said, God is not the author of evil. Neither, however, is he the victim of evil. Okay. Habakkuk 1.5, under the providence of God. Behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously. For I, notice the next phrase, will work a work in your days which you will not believe though it be told you. So God says, yes, there's evil. I'm not the author of the evil. but I'm not, And I'm not going to stop all the evil yet. But I am going to work a work through the evil to accomplish my purposes. Psalm 111, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His work is honorable and glorious. This phrase here at, at this um, laboratory in Cambridge said, is the Latin of Psalm 111:2. The works of the Lord are great. The works of the Lord are great. Genesis chapter 1 says that God saw his creation that he made and it was very good. Okay, so God is not the author of evil, but neither is he the victim of evil. Simply means God is not taken by surprise by the evil. He's not defeated by the evil. He's still powerful, even in the presence of evil, enough to protect his people and to work the sovereign work that he desires to at different parts of time. Satan was the first one who ever committed evil. Ezekiel 28.15, Genesis 3.1, we see that before Satan there was no sin, yet the devil, iniquity was found in him. He was the founder of sin, and then he went to mankind. And Romans 5.12 says, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So when God created heaven... None of the angels inhabiting heaven were sinners. But when Satan chose to sin and the other angels chose to follow him, now there was evil. And here's the very basic theology, the answer for suffering in the world. God created the world not like this, not to be like this. When he made it, it was perfect, it was good, it was very good. But when Adam chose to sin and go along with Eve and what she did, God said, you have freely chosen to sin and the effects of sin are going to come upon you and upon your children and upon all who bear your likeness. So then, sin is man's fault, not God's. Evil is a result of sin. So therefore, evil is man's fault, not God's fault. Every bad and evil thing in the world is a result of mankind choosing to sin when God would not have had the evil there. But because we have sinned and because we are tainted by evil, what do we deserve if we were to be judged on our merits? 
it would be the lake of fire. It would be to be lost. So then every bad thing that is in the world is the result of man, not God. But every good thing in the world is a gift from God that mankind does not deserve. And Jesus gave his son to give the ultimate answer to evil and suffering, which is redemption of the creation and of the body. Romans 8, 22 and 23, as the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain, we ourselves also, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. The, under the letter B, we see the character of God. Habakkuk 1, 6. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So Habakkuk says, God, why is there so much evil? And God says, I've got an answer for you. Are you ready? Here's your answer from God. The Babylonian army is going to come sweeping through Jerusalem, burn your cities and take your children captive. Okay, well, before God didn't speak... Now God is speaking, but that's not helping me. Habakkuk chapter 1 underneath it. What's his response? Verse 13. Thou, he says to God, are of purer eyes, art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? So, God, I know that we had our problems. But you're saying part of your solution to punish us for our sin is to allow people who are even more wicked than we are to defeat us and to take us captive. How does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't to our minds, but the Bible is full of examples of God using evil to bring about good. He can even providentially work through the evil actions of a place like the nation of Babylon to say, I will use you to punish my people who need to be punished and allow their hearts to be called back to repentance with God. And though the answer was not given to Habakkuk immediately, what we see through what God said and the prophets of God said and what happened in history is that the nation of Babylon was judged as well and judged harshly. So God was able to deal with them at another time, but to use their attack on Israel to let Israel know that when you rebel against God... God's going to punish you. I've got to move quickly through the rest of this year. And I've got some points of discussion and I want to open the floor too for any questions. Let's see if we can get through this here as quickly as we can. God executes judgment. This judgment is a part of his nature. The next few verses there talk about the judgment of God and about the fact that God shows mercy. Sometimes he winks at the ignorance, but ultimately commands all men everywhere to repent and will hold them accountable for their failing to repent and sinning against the light that he gives them. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So then we have to remember, how could O.J. Simpson get away with murder? What if he were to truly repent and be saved? Would you be angry at that? If you were to be angry at God not punishing a murderer for his crimes and giving him what he deserved, you'd have to be angry at God for saving you from your sin. For you deserve to be punished as well. But if he dies without repentance, God said every work's going to be brought into judgment. The good and the evil. So God's not forgotten. God's not unable to keep accounts. God is able to say, yes, the Babylonians may be invading Jerusalem and punishing them, but I'm still going to deal with them and their sin at a later time. And God may not deal with evil immediately in the way we would want him to, but he does ultimately judge. In Habakkuk, God mentions sins that he's judging, greed, injustice, violence, drunkenness, idolatry. God sees it all. God knows it all. And God will eventually judge it all. So not only does he execute judgment, but he enters our brokenness. The scripture says of Jesus himself, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
Philippians 2, 7 and 8. He became a servant. He took upon him the form of a cross, uh, the form of a man. And he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the theme of redemption is the theme of all of Scripture. Which leads us to point number three, the hope of redemption. As Christians, we cannot escape the evil problem. But we do have hope for the evil problem. And that's something that the other worldviews do not truly have. Under the letter A, we have the forgiveness of sins, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14 Galatians 3.13 Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. Under the letter B, we see the renewal of the earth. The renewal of the earth itself. And though he speaks about the evil, in Habakkuk 2.14, he says the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 11.6-9 talks about the millennial kingdom and how it will be a time of peace. And even nature itself will be touched and given a time of redemption. And the lamb and the lion shall lay down together. And the little child would be able to put its hand upon a den of snakes and not have fear of being bitten. So in other words, when God reigns, things are good. When God's laws are followed, there was no evil in the garden. But when mankind turned the kingdom over to Satan, then evil came upon the world. But ultimately, God has dealt with the evil. He will deal with the evil and He will reverse the evil. So He will, in the new heaven and the new earth, wipe away all tears from our eyes. So Habakkuk went upon this journey throughout the Scripture, wrestling with God, arguing with God, in a dialogue, conversation with God. And then Habakkuk three seventeen through 19 are some beautiful verses He says, the fig tree is not going to blossom. There's going to be no fruit in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. In other words, the judgment is coming. Habakkuk says, God, stop the judgment. Stop the evil. Grant repentance. Give us revival. Revival. God, stop the evil. And he ultimately comes to the place of saying, God's revealed to me, I'm not going to stop this judgment. I'm not going to stop this evil. The the Chaldeans are going to defeat your people. But verse 18 begins with one little word that says yet, which means in spite of the fact that the evil's not going to go away like I wanted it to. Yet, I will rejoice in the joy and I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places. The phrase, therefore, He will make my feet to walk like hinds feet, is speaking of the female deer that would be on the mountaintop and the rocky terrain, and it would be unsure footing, but the the footsteps of the deer are so swift and sure that it could hop from rock to rock and not be in any danger. And Habakkuk says, I will joy in the God of my salvation in spite of the evil. And God will empower me to walk without stumbling in spite of the evil that surrounds me. This is the ultimate journey that God takes us on by Christians, as Christians. Other things that he gave for a response in the book of Habakkuk. And you can look up the scriptures that are lifted there. But Habakkuk said we should live by faith. We should pray for revival. We should rejoice in the salvation and the character of God. Rely on his strength and then continue with confidence. Okay, so while we deserve the judgment that we desire others to receive, that's something we have to remember. Anytime you get angry and say, God, why don't you punish that person immediately? They deserve it. Just remember, you deserve it as well. And the heart of God is actually for mercy to withhold the judgment and hope that there will be repentance. And that should be our hope as well. What will it take for God to stop all of this suffering? It's to end this age in judgment. That's why in the millennial kingdom there is not that suffering because God has dealt with evil. He's cast away those who are not saved and ultimately in heaven there will not be anyone there who will choose to sin. So if you want God to stop the suffering right now, 
Just remember anyone who right now does not know the Lord will not have an opportunity to continue on in repentance. So our prayer is, God, we want you to stop the evil. But if it's someone that's close to you, you're going to say, God, would you give a little bit more time so that more people may choose to repent? And even in God allowing mankind to continue to go forward with free will, it may look like the character of God is in question because of the presence of evil, but Him not stopping all evil immediately is actually a sign of His mercy and His goodness. Because He did not cause the evil, but He stands by ready to give redemption and forgiveness to those who have committed evil as soon as they are willing. So then, here's my concluding thought. The Christian is going to struggle with the answer for the presence of evil in the world. The same as any other worldview. But the atheistic world, while they may rage against the presence of evil and say, how could there be a powerful God and a good God and God be good enough to not want suffering, but yet not powerful enough to stop the suffering? And you, you get what the argument was. If God was all good and all powerful, he would stop the suffering. The other side of the argument for the atheist is while we may struggle with the presence of evil... They don't have an answer for the presence of evil, and they don't even have an answer for the presence of good. They have no definition of good. They have no right to call anything good, or they have no right to call evil evil, because if there is not God in His Word that has defined for us what is good and what is bad, then what are we left with? Our own devices, our own thoughts, what is right in our own eyes. And if there is no God, if we all are just the products of evolution, evolved more than any other animal, why would anything be called evil or be called good? If it profits you and your tribe to commit a senseless act of violence against someone else or their tribe, why not do it? Isn't that what the animals do? So the Christian may struggle with the presence of evil as the prophet did in the scripture, but at the same time he has an answer for the evil and he has a worldview that allows him to answer for the good and for why evil is evil to begin with in the first place. And of course, ultimately the answer is we need redemption, which comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I threw a lot out there that was kind of uh, heavy and a bit thick tonight. I have a couple of uh, question and discussion points that I jotted down some brief answers to. But before we get to that, I'll open up. Did anybody have a question or thoughts that came to you while we were covering these points here tonight? Nobody at all? All right. The discussion point says, have you ever met someone who presented you with the problem of evil to disprove God? What examples did they cite? Have you ever asked these questions yourself? What are some answers that you've heard or given? What I wrote down was just the simple truth that the Bible says all presence of evil comes from sin. It's the fault of man, not the fault of God. But God does give an answer, which is an escape through Jesus Christ and the fact that he will ultimately judge the evil and will stamp it out and set things right again. In other words, all of the bad that exists in the world is our fault. All of the good is a product of his grace. Atheists in particular often use the problem of evil to counter belief in God, but what solution can they offer to the problem of evil? Is this a viable solution? Again, my basic question would be, how can they explain good? Why not cause more suffering to benefit ourselves if we're simply the product of animal evolution and not of a God who gave us the ability to choose and who has actually defined for us what is right and what is wrong? In addition to Joseph, can you think of another Bible character who experienced suffering, but God actually was moving and working in their lives and blessed others through their suffering, even though they didn't understand their suffering in the moment? Job was exactly what I wrote down because it's such a classic story that illustrates that point, as well as being the other book in the Bible, like Habakkuk, that deals with the question of justifying the actions of God in the way that they they uh, affect mankind and how were people blessed through the story of Job. God put it in the Bible. We may not all have that answer clearly to every act of evil and suffering, but God was able to show Job, your, your suffering that you went through was allowed by me 
and I had a plan to bless you more in the end of your life than the beginning. And not only that, but I'm going to put it in my eternal words so that the saints of every single age and generation can read your story and see that there's hope in spite of the suffering that we are going through. The last question, how does knowing how the story of suffering will end provide hope? How can we remind ourselves of this climactic ending when we are in the midst of all suffering? I just put down, we have to remember we have redemption and we have an end point for all of our sorrow. Jesus said, a little while you will suffer. A little while the evil will continue. And as I said earlier tonight, this heat, it's going to be 105 degrees on Friday. If the forecast was for it to be 105 degrees the next 100 days straight, I think I'd have a lot harder time dealing with it on Friday than remembering that they said on Saturday it's only going to be 92 degrees or whatever it is. In the same way, when we feel overcome with that darkness and that evil, don't feel that you are evil or beyond hope for having questions because even the people in the Bible had questions and God dealt with them patiently and lovingly. But remember that whatever it is that seems so unbearable is not to last forever, but ultimately God takes it away. We have an end of all sorrow. We have the answer to all questions and it's contained within the internal word of God. Does anybody have any other thoughts, questions, prayer requests that would come to mind? If not, that's, that's okay. All right. That's because Jeff's not here. He always gets it started. After he asks a question, then everybody else says something. All right. There. I knew Joe had one. I have a prayer for us. Sure. Uh, for Hawaii, you know, all that's going on over there. There's a lot of missing children. You know, hopefully uh, they find these children. And if there's something shady going on, that God will put their wrath on them. Yeah. That's another news headline that reminds us of what we're talking about tonight. All of that terrible suffering. I can't imagine especially the missing children. So let's pray for the Lord to, to bless those people in that recovery and that my prayer is always some people would hear the gospel that maybe wouldn't have. And we got to be careful to remember that we don't feel accusatory ever at a certain group of people who do suffer. Jesus said at one point they came to him and they said, you know that tower fell and it killed these innocent people? Or I think maybe Jesus brought up the example without being asked about it, but the tower of Siloam had collapsed and killed a certain number of people. And he said it was not for their sin. In other words, it wasn't that they were so wicked that God said, I'm going to collapse the tower on them. But Jesus said it was so that we all might know, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So in other words, when you see the tsunami, a terrible, violent ending, Jesus said, let that be a reminder that unless you experience repentance and faith in Christ, you're going to come to a sudden violent end. And it's going to be even worse than theirs because it's going to be for all of eternity. So God does use the evil in that way too to remind other people to think when people are thinking about death, it's a good time for them to think about the Lord. Because the old saying is, you won't find an atheist in the foxhole. Whatever your professed belief system is if you're in the trench and the bullets are flying over your head you're probably going to start saying a prayer to somebody out there whether you have admitted that it's jesus or not because within the human heart we know there's more than this life we know there's an answer and the evil and the violence makes us consider that so when there's suffering when there's a pandemic when there's death that's a pretty great time to remind people we know a savior who has the answer to death itself and people are more open to hearing about that throughout those times. So, very good. All right, Ronnie, would you go ahead and dismiss us with a word of prayer, sir?